I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Simon Critchley. He's a professor of philosophy at the New School for Social Research, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Bald. The moderator of the New York Times Stone Column and the author of numerous books on everything from Greek tragedy to David Bowie, Simon Critchley, Ph.D., has been a strong voice in popular philosophy for more than a decade. He brings together 35 essays originally published in the Times on a wide range of topics from the dimensions of Plato's Academy and the mysteries of Eleusis to Philip K. Dick, Mormonism, Money, and the Joy and Pain of Liverpool football club fans. In an engaging and jargon-free style, he writes with honesty about the state of the world as he offers philosophically informed and insightful considerations of happiness, violence, and faith. Welcome to the show, Simon. Thank you, Catherine. That just about wraps it up, I think, with that description. That's That's great. (laughs) All right. So we're done. That's what you've done. And uh, thanks very much for being on the show. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to be able to beat top that. That that sounded... (laughs) I'd like to read that book. That's great. <laughs> well, it's great. <laughs> I I do I I did read your book, and it, it's a it is a good book. It's what what thirty five of these essays, and really making philosophy yeah. come to life for all of us. Because as you say, I think maybe it's in the foreword of the book. You know, we think of phil- philosophy, and you know, it's erudite, and you know, who's going to be able to understand it? But you really do bring in the old philosophers with a new perspective and you get it all out there. So let's talk about that. How do you do that? Um, and how does the bald come in? Let's get the title. Oh, how right. Does the, how does the bald yeah. come in? Well, I mean, I've been, you know, I, for me, philosophy has always been the aspiration I've had is that philosophy is part of the life of a culture, part of the way that a society thinks, thinks through its deepest issues so that the, uh, I've had that commitment since I was since I was a student because that's kind of how I started out, and um, and I see no reason why I don't think philosophical philosophy is particularly difficult. I think the questions that we deal with are everyday questions that can be um, can be can be addressed in, in an everyday way, and the problem with a lot of um, academic philosophy and academia in general is that people tend to wrap things up in kind of um, wigs and toupees and comb-overs and uh, different kind of disguises to kind of make themselves seem cleverer than they actually are. So the the idea of bald was, uh, I just thought it was funny (laughs) because I'm bald and people... Uh, it's one of the few things that people can still make jokes about, you know, uh, oh, you, you're looking really, you're, you're bald, you know, people, people will say, you know, you're, you're looking really overweight or whatever, but, you know, baldness is a, and it's meant to be in a, in a funny way. And then also the idea is that I'm trying to write in a bald way uh, without any, without any adornment, without any kind of, uh, philosophical hair transplants or toupees or anything like that to try and speak clearly to um, as large an audience as possible. And that's something that I've tried to hone over the, um, over the last, particularly over the last 12 years working with the New York Times, which has been 
a great opportunity. But um, so, and you're working with well. the New York Times, but you're also teaching at the New School, right? Yeah, I teach. Yeah. yeah so, how do you keep those yeah. students from you know sitting there and you know get really specific about how falling asleep? You know, you know, philosophy. I had to take philosophy 101. I remember in college. So, um, you you are bald. Ball, you're bald and you're bold. I'm bold. <laughs> Bold. You're bold, bold and you're bald, <laughs> and definitely, we can call you baldy, bold. like you say. We can't call people fatty, but we can say call you baldy, which is trendy now, isn't it? It's it's you know baldness, yeah. Well, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, now it's taken a while. It's taken a while for that to come around, but yeah, I'm milking it for every every <laughs> moment of it. Yes, so yes, I've um, I'm bald and I'm sure. I don't know, and this year has been so hard, or the, the last academic year, which finished last month, so hard to engage students uh, over distance, over Zoom. I don't think I did uh, a terrifically good job. I did the best I could do, but really hard. If you've got them in the room, you can you, know, you can read them, and you can try and engage them, and you're always looking for, I don't know, I see teaching as, in a kind of really naive way as saving souls in a strange way. I'm trying to look for people that have got that, I don't know, that, um, that sense of being a little bit, a little bit weird, a little bit odd, not quite fitting into the world. Maybe they were told they're a little bit too smart and too inquisitive and to try and, you know, find them and bring them out and to, uh, help them find their, their voice. And, um, so how do you do that in class? I mean, how do you, you know, you have a whole group of students. You, obviously, you said it's more difficult on Zoom than it is in person. Very. Yeah. So uh, how do you spot those kids? Um, it, it's hard, and it's often back to front. Often, you know, which is what makes teaching such a peculiar experience. It's often, it's often the, the students that talk more that have got less to say, and the students that talk less that have got most to say. So... It, it often takes a long time to get to uh, the really interesting students in the room and try and bring them out. Uh, and the only way you can do that is through, you know, one-on-one work or within small groups. So I think once, I mean, the, 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 only, the only lesson of teaching, the only, uh, the only the secret that I know is, is number. If you've got a small group of students, it's, it's easier. You can reach them, a large group of students. It just gets much, much harder. So, and I try and meet, you know, one-on-one with the students I'm teaching and you get the measure of them and you see, you know, what they what makes them tick. And then, you know, it's, it's not going to be for everyone. I mean, you know, everyone can take something from a, a class, but you know, you're always after those two or three students that you can really kind of, uh, you can you can pick out and really push on, and then they can go and develop in their own in their own way. That's really what I'm trying to do. So I don't I don't mind if if someone comes away from a class with a feeling of it being boring or disappointing. Well, it wasn't for them uh, necessarily. I did the best job I could, but I'm after I'm after you know that those few few weirdos that I can really cultivate. But there's quite a lot of them, you know. And uh, the, the upside of the, the downside of the pandemic has been the distance and um, the fact of not being able to teach face to face and read people in the way in which you uh, you normally can do. Uh, the upside has been that uh, 
people have been asking a lot of searching questions about their lives and um, philosophical questions. So it's been a very philosophical moment, just a deeply philosophical moment, I think, the last year and a half. And uh, I hope that it we continue to ask some of those searching questions about, you know, what what things mean, what is of value to us, uh, how should we organize our lives, and these these types of things, these deep searching questions. Well, I think that what the last essay in the book is about COVID, right? COVID Kodai, that's yeah. the title of it. So, so let's start with that. Like, uh, how do we cope with that? I mean, I'm sure all of this is came up in your class I would imagine you know how are we coping with code you know with COVID I mean talk about philosophical issues um well I mean I mean philosophy is a you know is, is a it's just a strange discipline it's, it's um you know it begins I mean one one definition of philosophy which you can find in uh, Cicero and this goes back to the ancient Greeks is to philosophize is to learn how to die and um, that's a very ancient understanding of, of philosophy, that really to philosophize is to, to become reconciled with your mortality. And, and it's only when you've accepted your mortality, the fact that you're not going to be around for, forever, that you, and there's a, there's a limit to your life. Your life, life is finite. It comes to an end that you can, um, that you can really kind of, you know, shape up and find focus and to that extent covid was uh, was a kind of extraordinary <laughs> opportunity in a way because everybody felt threatened and fearful and um and um anxious and often having um uh, strange you know hypochondriac symptoms and um i think people's habits changed it's you know i've been away for six weeks the last from the middle of May until yesterday. And so I'm just, just back in New York now, and it's remarkable how much things have changed in the six weeks I've been away. I'm still trying, trotting out with my mask, and suddenly nobody's wearing masks anymore. So I hope we don't forget. So there's a tendency, you know, I mean, it, an example which I think is uh, really suggestive is that, um, you know, I was brought up and a lot of people like me were brought up with the memory of the First World War. We thought the First World War was a hugely important thing, the war to end all wars and and um, and so on and so forth. And we remembered the war. We used to remember it on Armistice Day, November every year. And we forgot the Spanish flu, which killed more people than the First World War. And so my my fear about what's I mean, going forward is that something has happened to us over the last year and a half. We've gone through all sorts of things and uh, all sorts of experiences, and the effects of those are only going to be really felt in the months to come and the years to come. Most obviously, for example, on, you know, say, the education of kids, you know, really whether what the long-term effects of lockdown might have been. And so... We have to, I mean, I hope that the least we can do is to retain a, a, a memory of what, what we've been through and to, and to hold tight to it when we, you know, as, we, as we go forward. And, the, you know, the idea that we're, I mean, I, I begin from the idea that we are, um, you know, a 
I think that I'm very fond of is, is Blaise Pascal, the 17th century geometer and scientist and also religious thinker. And he, um, he begins from the idea that we are weak, fragile, vulnerable, dependent creatures. We're, we're dependent. We're not independent. We're not individuals living alone. We're, um, we're dependent, we're vulnerable, and uh, the universe can crush us, a virus can, could wipe us out. And uh, so I think what the, for me, what, what COVID has taught us is the fact of our, of our weakness and our dependence upon each other. And that's, and that's our strength. That's, our, that's what binds us together. So to see, to, see, to see human fragility, mortality, and weakness as, as a source of strength rather than as a, a source of a, its opposite. And I think that's very... If we, could, if we could carry that forward, that would be great. That would change a lot. But you know, you talk about the difference, I think, in that chapter or in that essay, you know, fear versus anxiety, which is interesting, you know, yes. being fearful of... I think your example was a, was afraid of bears, and if a bear came in the room, you'd be terrified. But okay, we get it. And when he left, you would be not terrified, hopefully. But anxiety yes. is different, and I think I, in in terms of COVID, that's it's pervasive, and it's I think it's still pervade because pervades because you know okay yes you know you read something in the CDC yesterday the Delta variant is yes. a, you know something that we have to be fearful. So I don't think we're going to forget. I think we're going to have to, this whole issue of anxiety is going to continue and how we cope with that and how we see ourselves in that context, I think is really here to stay. Um, I, you know, I hope said, so. I mean, it's yeah. a strange thing to wish, doesn't it? But I really hope so. Yeah. I think that, I mean, anxiety is, anxiety is, I mean, you know, it's not nice. It's not nice to be anxious, but it's really, really important in the sense in which, I mean, I think in many ways that the the reason I got into teaching in the first place was because of anxiety, the anxiety that I was feeling as a a young person, which I didn't really have uh, names for. I didn't really have a way of addressing the experience, but I was hearing it in the music I was listening to in the the novels I was reading, and were inclined to see, uh, to confuse anxiety and fear. So fear is fear of something. This is something which goes back to, you know, the earliest discussions of fear we have. Aristotle, a fear of, uh, of something, like, like a huge bear, uh, which could tear to shreds. And, and in our case, our fear was a fear of a, a virus which was which was real, which existed, and which devastated lives. But what we were feeling was anxiety, which had no specific object. Anxiety is anxiety about things in general. It's about it's an anxiety about you know, being in the world in general, and that anxiety is a way of um, sharpening our senses you know of not of not falling back into uh, indifference and complacency and i think it's it, it's hugely important um and that's why you know so for me anxiety is is really a key a, a key mood that we need to hang on to the question is how you can how you can take anxiety from um something which gets diagnosed as a disorder which needs to be 
medicated into something of a, of a general kind of feeling of existence, which can actually be a, a source of, a, 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 of, of, of even calm, of strength. I think that's possible, but it requires, um, requires work, I think. Do you and think it requires people. work by the you know, us as we as individuals or as a, a culture? Yes. Because we, you know, well, we are medicating. If we feel anxious, pop off to the doctor and, you know, you get a pill to get rid of the anxiety. Pop a Xanax, yeah. whatever people do. But, you know, so we don't like anxiety. That, that makes us, right. um, yeah. Yeah, for me, anxiety is not a disorder. Anxiety is basically the, um, you know, it's the, it, it's the human condition. It's what we, it's what we do. We, we, um, it, it's our sense of um, uh, aloneness, our sense of being apart from the world and experience, and um, it's where our our doubts and our worries take take shape. But it's not. It's a question of, uh, for me, of not, uh, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm not an expert, but certainly socially it's a question of taking that, that, that mood of anxiety, that feeling, and, and then educating it, as it were, uh, developing it, honing it into something that can actually, um, can actually do things in the world. And I think that's entirely possible. I think that the anxiety is... Um, uh, it's, so it's not just not just a disorder where disorders needs to be medicated away out of existence. It's it's a it's a mood, a, a feeling of being uh, what it feels like to be a self, which can, if you handle it the right way, be the experience of of freedom, of uh, of being a self that pushes out into the world. I think that's desperately important. That um, and the problem there is it's so it's an individual issue, yeah, but it's also an issue of the. Uh, medical profession of the you know uh, the the DSM and the you know the, the way in which we diagnose people um, and 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 um, and you know I'm not I'm not anti drug at all but I think it's it's important to uh, to be able to understand the experiences we have uh, before we kind of see them as disorders that need to be removed from us. If you get me, I think the same thing could be said about something like um, grief, for example. You know, uh, grief is not feeling grief or the loss of someone that you uh, loved is not a disorder. It's a, it's, it's the, you know, it's the most important thing in the world, and we have to learn to shape that grief into something which uh, doesn't fall into depression and melancholy, but which can kind of push out into uh, sympathy and compassion with, with other people. Well, I think uh, grief is a good example because I think we tend to do the same thing with grief too in our society. We, we want to get rid of it as quickly as possible. You know, when someone mm-hmm. dies, it's always, you know, you give someone maybe six months to a year to get over it. You'll get, you know, yeah. um, we have all kinds of euphemisms we tell people if they've suffered a great loss. So that, too, we want to cover up the, the grief. Um, so, yeah, I think, I, I, think this is also, I, think this, I think this is also a really important uh, political point as well, that the, you know, it's that grief is, I mean, I remember the, um, after 9-11, there was, um, I think, uh, 
Bush too said something like, after 10 days of you know, grieving for 9-11, he said, <laughs> he sort of declared an end to grief and said, you know, right, so it's get over. Back, get back to it. And <laughs> it's just not like that. I mean, I, I went to, on Sunday, I was, I was, I was in England seeing my um, family and seeing my sister and son and all of this in the last few weeks, which was great. And the first thing I did when I got to um, the Telegraph in was to go see my mother's grave and my grandmother's grave and Yes, at that point, I, I was there with my son, and I remembered the funeral, which was uh, six years ago, and we were talking about it. And yes, yes, it's not, it's never gone, it's never healed. And the idea of there being, uh, you know, it, it's uh, what's her name? Um, oh, Elizabeth Kurtz file, cool. the six stages of grief. That, that Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Kubler Ross. Kubler-Ross, Kubler yeah. Kubler-Ross. Kubler-Ross. I think that's, I mean, it's, it's a nice idea. It's just not true, and it, it doesn't have to be true. I think you can feel there are people that can just feel grief forever. And, I'm stuck um, at stage one. <laughs> right. And I think, and I think you know, I think what's, what's happened in the last year, regardless of the, uh, regardless of policies or um, uh Politics in that kind of narrow sense is that uh, there's been a transition in this country from someone who was clearly unable to mourn to someone who is really a mourner. So whatever, <laughs> whatever we can say about Joe Biden, he is the you know, mourner-in-chief. He's someone that feels people's pain around, around grief. And, that's, and that, you know, during a pandemic, yes, that, that makes sense. It's... Um, well, he's because, able to uh, talk about his own grief. He's, he talks about his son. And, you know, even in our culture, when someone dies, then no one wants to even mention their name. They're afraid. They're uncomfortable. Uh, it, so, you know, that's part of our problem. But, he, yes, he, he, he's right out there. Talk about transparent, about his grief. Yeah, also, yeah, and also just is, is that death itself is something which is, um, you know, effectively taboo. I mean, it's... Yeah. Um, we don't have, I mean, we're, I always think that we're like um, kind of anti-Victorians in the sense in which the Victorians had a very, uh, a very, very elaborate ways of memorializing death. If we look at Victorian gravestones and funeral, funerary monuments, and, uh, but they had problems with sex. Uh, and we're the opposite. You know, we'll talk about sex until we're blue in the face, but death, is passed over with, you know, euphemisms, with awkwardness, with, uh, you know, with a sense of what, what words do we even use? Do we say someone's died or they've passed, passed or they gone? Passed away. And I think, you know, death is death, and it's, it's it, you know, it's going to happen to us all, that's for sure. And Well, maybe to you, it, but not to me. I mean, I don't want to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> How do you mean? No. It, it was a joke. It, what's going to happen to Ooh. all of us? I said, um, Oh, right. Death. I see. Sorry. No, sorry. Got you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, well, maybe you're right. Yeah. It's, uh, that would be, that'd be interesting. Yeah. Even there, you see, um, uh, I think about, gosh, uh, there were these characters in Gulliver's Travels. In book three of Gulliver's Travels, there's a visit to the, Isle of Laputa, and there are these characters called Strawbrugs, Strawbrugs, who are immortal. They, they, um, they live forever. 
and uh, they're marked with a black spot in the middle of their forehead. That's how you know there's a straw brook. And uh, Swift describes them slumped in along the you know in the alleys of, of towns. They've lost any interest in life. They've um, they can no longer understand what's what's going on, and they're three four hundred years old. So in a sense, the worst curse that could be imagined would be um, a life without end in that sense that you know it's about i mean hopefully a little bit more than three school years and ten but but there's a shape to a life and uh, and also a way in which that is is inherited and, and passed on i think these things are really really important and um and that and that and that and that begins from an idea that we are uh we're incomplete creatures we're, we're weak and dependent creatures that uh, are therefore, we're not rugged individuals. We are we are creatures which are which are which are open and rent, and that's um, that's where we have to begin, in my view. And that that changes a lot. And philosophy can can help in that regard, I think. Well, speaking of philosophy can help, we need to read your book, which will help us even further. Uh, so I want to admit, we only have a couple of minutes. <laughs> We have a couple minutes left, so uh, Bald is the title of the book, 35 Philosophical Shortcuts. Simon Critchley uh, is who I've been talking to. And Simon, um, can you give us a website and or websites to go to for more? We can buy the book online, I guess, at bookstores everywhere. Um, Yeah, the book is, you know, on the, you know, on the, on the, the hegemon that is Amazon and, uh, and elsewhere, and also you know, a lot of the material is available on the New York Times website for any subs- subscribers out there. But um, and there's a website, I think simoncritchley.org, which is more of a kind of archive of stuff that I've just done over the years. And there's, there's lots of other things as well. I don't really have a, an organized social media <laughs> presence. But and I, tend to, I function in terms of books. I mean, I write. I write books and I'm committed to a kind of, uh, I'm committed to an obsolete form in that way that I like the unit of the book. That That's, that's what I want to say. Um, and I, and I'm thinking about the next one now, but it's, yeah, it's been, it's been 12, well, 11, 12 years of working with the New York times. And, um, and we, we had the, the good fortune to begin this, in the days when the, the print newspaper, the print New York Times was still king, and they had what used to be called a website. And on the website, they didn't really pay that close attention to what was going on. So we developed the, um, uh, the philosophy column on the, on the website with uh, my editor, Peter Catapano, and, we, um, and then we found that we had an audience, uh, a large audience. So when, when the Times moved over to going fully online, which is how... Most people digest, digest their news now, and then they'll look at the they'll maybe look at the the print copy at the weekend for kind of nostalgic reasons. Um, we were there with our you know, community of readers, so that was a that was lucky. But the so point you were is that, yeah ready to go. I hate to cut you off, but we, the next guest okay. is, is coming on. But uh, it was great talking to you today. Thank you great for talking being to you, on, Catherine, and thank you yeah. so much for your questions. Great, thanks, Simon. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 